Hey, it's Dan Harmon from Harmontown. I want to tell you about an exciting new podcast coming to Feral Audio called Launch Left. Rain, Phoenix, and Moon Zappa are going to interview extraordinary minds, mavericks, and pioneers in their fields. This season, Launch Left is going to celebrate nonconformists like Michael Stipe, Shepard Ferry, Spike Jones, Mario Batali, and many others. And those guests are also going to spotlight their favorite left-of-center emerging artists. So listen and subscribe now at feralaudio.com slash left, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do it however you want, man. That's the nonconformist part. Hey, how we do? Welcome back. Welcome back. Wait, why did I say welcome back? Oh, it's, yeah, this is the second time. This is the second episode of Twisting the Wind. I'm Johnny Pemberton. Welcome back. How does it feel? Does it feel good to be back? Probably doesn't really feel like anything different, but it's, uh, it feels good to me. I'm not back. I've always been here. I haven't moved at all. Well, thank you for coming back. If you are indeed coming back, if you're joining us, I want to say us, I mean me, Unless you consider some sort of duplication thing to happen when you have your voice because it's a recording. So it's like basically creating an alternate universe someplace else inside a machine. So it, it is we. It is we because it's you and me. And maybe you're listening to it with your friends. Maybe you're having a party. You're having a party right now listening to this show? I appreciate that. It's not really a party kind of thing. But I don't, you know, who am I to judge what type of party it is that you want to have? When I say who am I to judge, I mean... I'm not to judge. I'm not to judge. I'm not. Welcome back to Twisting the Wind. Thank you. This is an exciting time right now. Holiday, this is How can I help you? Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Cool, yeah. Pretty good. Me too. Hey, you hear about this uh, whole idea about peak oil? You know what I mean? No. No, uh, it's this um, theory that's... Uh, that the oil is going to run out? Okay. Do you, do you believe that? Have I guess. You, have you ever heard of it? No. Yeah, I don't know. It's not like talked about much. It's not a very popular thing to talk about it, you know, because it's kind of like, kind of a, you know, a little dismal. You know what I mean? It's kind of not so optimistic, I guess, but, you know, it's, it's reality, yeah. right? What's better, reality or living in a dream? I don't know. Because it's like, how much is gas right now? I can't tell you that over the phone. Oh, you really? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Why, why is that? You don't have to tell me. You just uh, just because of competitors. Oh, okay. So someone like would call up and they'd ask you how much theirs, yours is and they would make theirs like a little more or a little less? Probably less. Okay. I thought they didn't have a control over that price. I thought that price was kind of dictated by... OPEC. You know about OPEC? No. Do you have a question or can I get back to work? Yeah, I was going to ask you if you um, know about OPEC. The, you know, um, no. oil, what is it? It's Petroleum X, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. It's like the union of all the countries in, you know, Middle East and whatnot who export oil. Because, you know, the United States used to export oil back in the 70s and, well, not 70s, before that, like in the 50s and stuff. Do you know that? Mm -mm. Like, we used to be a net exporter. 
and people buy oil from us, then we used up all of our oil in the United States for the most part. And now we import almost like, I don't know, a huge, over two-thirds of our oil is imported, maybe even more. So, and these, the, the oil in the Middle East and other places is running out. And that means that it's going to be less and less of it. It's going to cost even more money. You know what I mean? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And like, yep. Isn't it, you realize how many things depend upon the use of cheap oil? Because it's pretty cheap if you think about it. You know? Like, I guess, yeah. Well, like gas stations, like supermarkets, everything gets delivered there. You know, everything, everything that we've got, we buy and sell goes on a truck. Those are all gas-powered. When people think electricity is it's clean, it's not. And not everything can be electric, you know. It's not like they have a bunch of electric yeah. trucks. That's what that's what peak oil is. Is the idea that they've taken the most, the amount coming out of the ground has reached the highest level possible. Okay. You should check it out. I think it's interesting it's because it's coming. It's coming down the pipe. Right. That's the bad pun because it's literally not coming down the pipe. It's. The pipe is going to go dry because it's going to cost too much money. There's this idea of energy returned over energy expended. You ever heard that idea? No. You know how, like, um, well, it takes energy to get oil out of the ground. You know, they have to, like, run pumps and they have to, all these different things to get the oil out. Yep. So it takes about one barrel of oil to get 20 barrels out right now. Used to be, like, 1 to 100 back in the heyday. And uh, so that, that'll start diminishing until it's the point where it's like one to five, you know, one to four. And at some point, it's going to take as much to get it out as you're getting out, which basically means you're, it's, you're doing a job. It's like you're eating food on a treadmill, you know what I mean? It's like you're only getting hungrier. It's like you're eating celery on a treadmill. That's ridiculous, right? Yeah. Because you could just burn it off because celery has like zero calories. So eventually that's going to be us, except what happens is then you stop being able to run because you're not getting any calories, so you just like fall over and you kind of die. That's what's going to happen to the economy. Or at least it's going to happen, it's going to contract, you know what I mean? It's going to get smaller. Because like you have all these big things, like big buildings, the massive, the interstate highway system is huge, right? Yeah. And that's all made with fossil fuels, like the asphalt and all that stuff is made with fossil fuel byproducts to run cars that are mostly made of fossil fuel byproducts or with fossil fuel energy and that run on fossil fuel energy. And it's like, and you got China, you know, China's coming down the, coming down the pipe, right? I mean, they're, they're getting huge. Their industry is expanding massively and they're using all this oil and they used to just be, you know, farming and, Doing doing Chinese stuff. You know what I mean? It's crazy. Yep. I mean, you should think about it. Did you go? What are you doing right now when you don't work? Do you like do other stuff too? Yeah. Like what are you into? No, I'm not interested in telling you that. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. I don't. I'm not trying to like track you down or anything. I'm just just curious. You don't have to tell me. I don't see. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not digging deep here. That's the thing. Is like you got to think about what you do because everything you do is based upon this thing that may not be around much longer. I don't know how old you are, but you're probably like I bet you're under 25, right? 
So you're probably going to live for another 70 years or so. God willing. There's going to be a lot mm-hmm. of... Yeah, like that kid, that kid in the background, that kid's going to be around. Things are going to probably be a lot different, you know? Yeah. Because... Yeah, just running out of this oil. It's gonna. Everything depends on it. No one wants to wake up and smell the coffee, so to speak. Take a bite of the rose, and oh, it's a thorn. You know what I mean? You ever heard that saying before? Yep. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um. You know, banks, banks, all that stuff. There's a lot of people who think that the uh, that entire crisis that happened, the housing crisis. You know about that? Yep. Yeah, the housing bubble was created from an overextension in the housing market because of suburbia. And suburbia is a not is not a sustainable way of living because it requires everything it requires massive amounts of oil to stay afloat, to stay propped up. And when you when you don't have that and when the economy goes sour and things that are, used to be cheap start to become expensive, they just become not worth not worth doing it, so they just fall apart. And that's and that's what the housing. Oh no, that's part of the housing bubble. Greed. There's this thing, yeah. there's this thing that happened called the Glass-Steagall Act, which took down the firewall between investment banking and commercial private banking. And what that did is it allowed investors to overinvest with private people's money, and it created this. Uh, it's complicated, right? You know what I mean? But basically. Yeah. Basically, the banks, they run everything now because, well, they're not going to run anything forever because this is all, it's all false. It's a, it's smoke. It's a balloon. It's a, it's fl- it's a, it's a fictitious inflation based upon nothing, based upon speculation. Uh, it's pretty crazy, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So peak oil. Have you ever heard of uh, James Howard Kunstler? No. He's a writer. You should check him out. He's got some great books. He's got a book that recently came out called Too Much Magic. It's about um, the failure of suburbia and the current status of the economy as based upon on the fuel that we use and just everything, and an overarching look at things. Uh, he's also written some fiction that's really amazing, one called uh, The Witch of Hebron, which is a follow-up to his book A World Made by Hand, which is a fictitious look at the world of how he sees uh, the United States after a sort of a, a semi-apocalyptic scenario in a post-peak oil economy where our lives, we don't have any electricity and we definitely don't have any gas. So we live in a way people used to live before the Industrial Revolution. He also wrote another book a long time ago. It's pretty big called The Long Emergency. Have you ever heard of that? The Long Emergency? No? Nope, I haven't. Yeah, that one, that's great. Seminal publication about peak oil. And he, you know, there's a lot of stuff he talked about that has since come true. Because uh, it's easy if you open your eyes and realize that a lot of stuff is just false and propped up. I recommend checking him out. James Howard Kunstler. All right. Yeah. So, I don't know if you're into, like, four-wheeling or any of that kind of stuff, but... Yeah, you guys are really pretty secretive there, huh? Yeah. Do you think I work for a comp- competing gas station? I'm not sure. I mean, honestly, what do you think? Yes or no? If you had to probably guess. Probably not. Probably not. Probably right. No. I don't, yeah. I don't I don't work for a gas station. It would would be a fine job. How do you like it? It's 
pretty good. Yeah. Do you have like good snacks there and stuff? Yep. Cool. What else is going on? Just working. What does that mean when you say just working? Well, I'm talking to you right now. Right, but there's other people around, right? Just one other. Oh, just We're getting one. ready to close soon. We're going to close. Why do you guys close? I don't know, because... Oh, just because? Okay, it's not like a... Wasn't sure if maybe like there's a reason because you think you think you'd be open 24 hours, right? No. No. Okay. This peak oil thing, you should check it out. I'm All right. You. Yeah, check it out. Okay. Okay. Well, um, just keep it just keep it locked and bring the noise, and I'm gonna talk to James Howard Consular for a little bit, okay? All right. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. See you later. Yeah. So you're in uh, Saratoga Springs right now, right? No, I'm actually in a little factory village 15 miles east of Saratoga okay. called Greenwich, Greenwich, New York, where I moved in November. Oh, you just moved, so you just recently moved? I did, in November, I moved from Saratoga Springs to Greenwich. So what, how, is, uh, how is Greenwich as compared to Saratoga Springs? Saratoga was getting a little bit hectic and uh, kind of overactivated by... Mm-hmm. A combination of tourism and uh, the fact that it's it's the only urban place in a, a kind of a, a an ambiguous metropolitan uh, uh, amoeba of the capital district of New York, which right. is sort of com- composed of three cities, none of which have any vitality, but all of which add up to a lot of population. That's Albany, Troy, and Schenectady. So I had to suck and up so, a lot of. Had to soak up all that Saratoga stuff. has become kind of the only healthy um, uh, urban place in the capital district, and it's you know, there's too many people moving in there. And um, uh, anyway, I couldn't afford to buy a place of the kind that I wanted to have. Mm-hmm. And um, these towns on the other side of the Hudson River are really depressed. They're very, very charming and sweet. But they have no industry left and no economy. And so real estate over here was relatively cheap. And I found a great place on three acres on the edge of this little village. So it's got everything I needed. It's walkable to the, to the main street. It's, um, it's sort of like a country estate Nice um, on the edge of town. And I have a huge amount of gardening space. Oh, wow. So what, what, what kind of stuff are you doing with the garden right now? Well, I built what's called a potager garden, which is sort of a, a formal French uh, kind of um, garden. It, it, it's mostly vegetables, but I'm also growing uh, culinary and medicinal herbs. Hmm. Um, and that's the beginning of what will probably be, uh, you know, a much larger um, complex of outdoor rooms that function as gardens. Have you ever thought about uh, doing a gardening book? Not really. Um, Mm -hmm. There are so many out there that are quite good already, and, um, you know, I'm just not as competent as the people who do that, although, uh, you know, I'm I'm good enough, but there's no... uh, You know, I I have other fish to fry, shall we say? (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely... I just do a lot of gardening myself and have been for a long time, and that's something that's like... There really are... uh, a lot of 
books about gardening. So it's something where yeah. if I was I was trying to find a book about just just container gardening uh, with with vegetables and like it's you can find like fifteen. You, you can't make a decision because there's just there's so much written yeah. about it, especially now because permaculture yeah. has become so popular. As it should. Uh, yeah, be. I am going to do a web page about it. Okay. Um, not a site, but just a page on my own on my own website about what I've done. And but you know, I, I don't pretend to be uh, you know a master teacher of it. It's just right. you know, in case anyone's interested. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely look at that. Now, there's this word that I, I first heard you use on the Kunstler Cast, and it's something like I've just grown really fond of. That's the word simulacrum. And you use that a oh, lot to describe yeah. things. Well, what what yeah. right now would you say is your favorite example of that word? Well, probably Disney's Main Street USA okay. is the one that people are, are best acquainted with. Uh, you know, it's um, uh, a simulacrum means uh, you know something pretending to be something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Walt Disney's Main Street USA is kind of. Uh, a machine for selling uh, trinkets and tchotchkes masquerading mm-hmm. as a uh, uh, classic American Main Street town. But it's not that at all. You know, people people go there to get um, sort of a, an equivalent of the feeling of what it's like to be in an American public place that would be a pleasing public place. And I say that because so many places in America are not pleasing mm-hmm. uh, in one way or another. You know, they're disturbing or alienating uh, or disgusting. But, um, you know, what, Disney, Disney World's Main Street is also kind of, uh, for me, alienating and disgusting in its inauthenticity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which, uh, go, going right down to the fact that the buildings are scaled to four-fifths of actual size to make them look cuter. Right. But um, there you have it. That's simulacrum. Have you heard about this thing we have in Los Angeles called The Grove? Uh, No, I've been to some of the, you know, so-called public places in L.A., including Universal City and Third Street in Santa Monica. (laughs) Yeah, Universal City. The Grove. Well, the Grove is. There's also this other counterpart to the not counterpart, but like it's it's like a Grove number two called Americana. It's basically uh, there's this developer. I'm trying to think how to describe it, but it's a lot like the a lot like the Disney. Main Street Simulacrum, except it is in the, right in the middle of the heart of Los Angeles, and it's like a, it's basically like like a shopping lagoon kind of thing where mm-hmm. where uh, there's a, there's a little trolley, there's all these stores, and everything's like walkable, but of course it's it's surrounded by seven stories of parking, and it's yeah, and it's so strange because you go there and it seems like for a, for for a second you're sort of in this idyllic version of uh, of an old. American town, except you know, there's there's urban outfitters and uh, guest jeans and a Mac store and all that. That's that's basically what you're surrounded by. Um, and mm-hmm. the the uh, the secondary one to this, the Americana in Glendale, is now they're now selling um, apartments that are above these retail spaces, like these like luxury loft apartments in the same mm-hmm. area. So I also saw this someplace in Atlanta that's doing the same thing. There's like this this sort of upscale shopping center that's also selling. Um, Apartments about that, and I was wondering what you thought about that because it seems to me it's like this thing where it's it's go, they've they've taken it so far to the degree with which they're trying to replicate this this bygone uh, era of a town 
Well, it's, uh, it, it's a, it presents a lot of confusing uh, signals, I think, but uh, th- there's a lot to say about it. Um, it sort of comes out of the new urbanist work that began in the uh, 1990s mm-hmm. as an attempt to uh, uh, recreate uh, mixed-use urban places that um, pe- that made people feel comfortable, that they wanted to be in and and work in and live in and shop in, and I think that j- that basic impulse was a good one, right? Um, especially the idea to create mixed-use places with buildings of uh, you know a mo- uh, with modestly scaled buildings, so that you you weren't always dealing with towers and you know giant uh, megastructures, so. Um, what they're really doing is trying to re- reintroduce um, urban fabric at a kind of universal worldwide scale that has been the scale that we've known for thousands of years. That is, you know, buildings that are, you know, two or three or maybe four stories high. Right. Um, that have different activities going on in them. And that's, a, that's okay. Um, now, the problem with it comes with this, that um, uh, it's embedded in a car-dependent matrix that's much larger than it is. Exactly. Um, so that, that becomes confusing um, and, and partly uh, off-putting because you then have to accommodate all the cars for the people who are visiting or living in this place. Yeah, it's and, an interesting and that's, thing. That's a weird thing. <laughs> and then the other thing is that, um, or one one other element of it is that they tend to um, uh, do all the leasing uh, to national chain retailers. So there's that inauthentic quality of, you know, just another replicated uh, chain store. And um, that's off-putting. And, 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 you know, sort of just smacks of, you know, being back at the mall in a different form. Um, and um, I think we have to understand a couple of things. First of all, this is a strange transitional time. This is a time when people are, are recognizing the shortcomings of the, the suburban living arrangement and everything that's gone with it, including all of its furnishings and accessories, mm-hmm. including the mall, the strip mall, the, the, you know, the, the strip highway, uh, the, uh, the, the, the compulsion to be in your car all the time. You know, all that stuff is terrible. And people, to some degree, would like to get away from it if they could. Um, but it is, after all, kind of a matrix that we're stuck in for the moment. We're going to be drag kicking and screaming out of it, and probably fairly quickly, because a lot of it will have to do with um, uh, scarcities in uh, energy resources and other material resources, and capital resources, meaning we're going to become a much poorer society again. Right. But... As a physical artifact, you know, these things are transitional artifacts between, you know, they're attempting to make a transition between the car-dependent madness of the 20th and early 21st century and something at a better scale that will follow. But they have all these, you know, transitional elements that are, that are creepy, like the fact that, you know, you're recreating a downtown, but <laughs> only with... Oh, but only with uh, national chains. Right. Yeah, that's that's one of the creepiest parts of it is that you're it seems very normal and kind of idyllic and you have this trolley going by but everything yeah. is these are these massive massive chains. So it's yeah, Well, there's it's, another very important element of it that 
you know, it would help uh, if Americans understood this, that you have to make a distinction between the physical fabric of, of what's built and the programming that goes into it. You know, what, what people are longing for, uh, in part, are relationships between buildings and public space that uh, make them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that has entirely to do with, you know, not building megastructures and building things of modest size and enclosing spaces that are comprehensible and not having them be filled with cars that are going fast all the time. Uh, and, and that's a big part of it. But then the, the, the programming issue is, uh, you know, what is the character of the retail and will people be allowed to live there? And if so, who are the people who will live there? And, um, you know, pe- uh, people get upset about the fact that they, they end up with expensive loft apartments in these places. But, <laughs> you know, that, that's the tr- that it's in the nature of, of um, uh, real estate development that, you know, new things uh, are more expensive right. uh, because they're new. And um, it's in the natural order of things that affordable housing is the new stuff that gets old at different rates of speed. Or, 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 excuse me, different, different rates of um, uh, upkeep. So that, you know, the, the luxury housing of one era uh, becomes affordable because the real estate hasn't been taken care of very well, and after 90 years, things are falling apart. Right. Right? And that's, that's exactly what you see in, in you know, in, in places like Venice Beach, where, you know, you have a, uh, a you know, a, a 70-year-old... Uh, uh, house that was wonderful when it was first built, but now it's kind of old and decrepit, and it's turned into four apartments. Yeah, exactly. That makes total sense. Um, so I, I just finished your new book, the Too Much Magic, and I was really excited to see you you addressing Ray Kurzweil and his ideas, just direct directly addressing that. Because I have a, one of my best friends. We all we we constantly get into arguments about the whole singular the the possibility of the singularity and ha- and all th- all things Kurzweilian, um, yeah. And so, like, how did you, how did you come to learn about him? And did you do you, have you guys ever met or anything? Have you ever talked? No, I never met Kurzweil. Um, uh, you know, the one thing I can say uh, about uh, uh, our mutual relations is only that we're about the same age. Okay. So you know, we we come from exactly the same moment in the Boomer generation. Right. Uh, and and it, to some extent, the same place. Um, uh, he came from a family. A musical family mm-hmm. that was very accomplished, uh, and um, uh, I believe I believe in New, in the New York metropolitan area somewhere. And I grew up in New York, uh, you know, as a boomer um, generation kid. And then we went our separate ways. And he's been tremendously successful in his life. You know, he he made a fortune even before he graduated from MIT by um, inventing, a, I, I believe, a voice recognition program. Yeah, just his patents alone are... Yeah, so he's this, you know, sort of staggeringly successful guy. He then he he then went on to um, form the Kurzweil uh, keyboard company that made synthesizers, uh, you know, that people may recognize from, you know, rock and roll right. uh, shows. And um, and then he's now he's gone on to other things. And um, but he's also the uh, promoter of this idea that not only is a hum- are humans going to soon be living forever, but we're going to meld with uh, machine-computer intelligence 
and more or less take over the universe and all the parallel universes attached to it. And, um, you know, this seemed to me to be absolutely the, the, uh, the flagship uh, example of technological hubris in our time, mm-hmm. or, or what I've come to refer to as uh, techno-narcissism. You know, a, a really um, um, flamboyantly excessive notion of how wonderful technology is and where it's taking us. And, and you know, I just thought it was worthy of ridicule. And it's also interesting in as much as, you know, here you have one of the most accomplished and intelligent members of his generation uh, doing something that, you know, getting involved in something that seems not only futile, but also in many ways destructive of uh, uh, our humanness mm-hmm. and, and of the human enterprise per se and of its, of, of its subsidiary civilization. Right, yeah, because he's trying to take everything off of that and put it all into this, all, put everything online. I, I just, yeah, um, yeah, including the universe. <laughs> right, putting the universe yeah. online. I, I watched the documentary that was made about him, and they go into a lot about his his family history and about his father, and what what like my assessment at least of like in terms of like psychology. It seems like he is the reason he is so uh, dead set on extending his life. And everyone else's is because his his father died when he was pretty young, and I think he's yeah. he's constantly trying to basically do he's trying to be who his father couldn't have been, which was be around for everything that his dad wasn't around for. It, it seems to me like it's like a like a very basic case of of, of having some type of a. She's trying to make up for something. It's like a defense mechanism. Yeah, compensatory sort of. behavior. That's it. Yeah, Johnny. Hold that thought. I've okay. got to um, leave the phone for a minute and rescue an animal from my cat. Okay. I hear something going on in the corner. Just hold on. Okay. Okay? What have you got there? Oh, no. Not a froggy. You bad boy. Come here. Hold on, Johnny. You're listening to Twisting the Wind with Johnny Pemberton on the Feral Audio Network. Yeah. Who's there? What the hell is going on here? Who's there? What? What are you talking about, man? Didn't you hear that super loud, scary sound that just interrupted the radio? Oh, uh, yeah, I did. It's actually going to keep happening until people donate. Uh, you mean there's going to be scary fart sounds playing all the time until people donate to Feral Audio? Goddamn right that's gonna keep happening, you hear it? Yeah! Okay, uh, please, please donate. This is not a sustainable situation, audio-wise. This is, uh, it's pretty bad right now. Uh, just, I'm, I'm very scared. I'm just genuinely very frightened right now. Please donate. PayPal, uh, Credit cards are fine. I think it's all fine. You can even... It's just it's not going to stop, is it? No way, man. Okay. Radio. Explosions. Okay. Right, maybe we'll try to play some music over this. Uh, feral audio. Every day it's some new... Some you can't new just eat something? Here. 
Pardon? What did your cat? Your cat just ate something? He brought a frog in. A frog, okay. Yeah, that's, that's the a frog was actually making a terrible noise. It was like Ooh. hissing and barking at him. So what did you do with it? But, you put it outside? Um, I put it outside. Have you had a cat for a long Sorry time? Sorry about that. It's okay. Pardon? Are you a long-time cat owner? Yes, I am. Really? So, definitely more of a cat Yesterday person. Yesterday it was a mole. A mole? That's kind of that's kind yeah. of big, isn't it? That's it can be pretty no, big, right? A mole is a, like about a three-inch long little mammal, oh. a kind of pathetic, blind little little mammal. I thought they were bigger. Like I guess that. I'm thinking of gophers. Yeah, gophers are a little bigger than the moles. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Oh, so yeah. But Anyways, Kurzweil. Right. Um, yeah. He. It just. I think it's that's funny that he, his he's taken this to such an extent when it's clearly something that's just like a psychological impairment or like a like a thing he hasn't gotten over like he's trying to mm -hmm. make up for lost time seems do you, do you yeah have you guys ever uh, do you, you don't have any bets with him do you do you, you guys don't have some sort of no, no, no I, I haven't uh, you know done a Julian Simon type thing with him uh -huh. You know, Julian Simon was the cornucopian economist who made a bet with Paul Ehrlich, the population uh, bomb writer, uh, that uh, you know we we wouldn't uh, encounter any problems with running civilization population because human capital was such that that even if we ran out of resources. Um, we we'd be so smart collectively that we come up with uh, alternatives. Well, that's still the that's still the running idea among almost anyone who ascribes to those um, Kurzweil ideas is that something will come up. Have you ever talked to anyone who's presented something that seems even slightly viable as far as like a thing that will that will um, allow those ideas to happen with enough energy? Well, that's uh, largely the point of my book, Too right. Much Magic. Right. Uh, is that um, we are we are in we have entered a cultural crisis. Uh, in fact, you could go further and say it's a crisis of civilization. Mm -hmm. it's, that, it's really that big. And um, rather than do things that uh, re rather rather than respond to it intelligently, we are simply. Uh, sitting around waiting for Santa Claus to deliver a technological rescue remedy that would allow us to run uh, Walmart and the interstate highway system by other means. And um, I maintain that that's not going to happen, mm -hmm. that we're going to be hugely disappointed. Uh, we're going to be hugely let down by technology's uh, uh, inability to uh, deliver us from these uh, problems that we face. And uh, th that that in in itself will lead to rather sub substantial uh, social problems, um, and and I think you can sort of state what they are pretty um, uh, succinctly that. Uh, people who are let down by technology and science are going to turn to superstition mm -hmm. and religion. Right. So and I, you know, I, I can see the, I can see American culture entering, a, you know, a, a really nasty age of, uh, you know, religious repression and superstition and darkness. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and by the way, you know, all of this taking place in within the context of a, of an, an economy that's failed. 
that has left people more or less impoverished. Right. And, um, you know, that, that could be a, a pretty nasty uh, uh, phase of... Uh, history. So what do you say to people then who just when you say stuff like this and you go against that that sort of blind spirit of Santa Claus optimism we'll call it. <laughs> what do you well, how, what do you say to that? Cuz well so many people just they label that as oh you need you need to be you need to be more optimistic about it. You need to like th- think about it's going to happen and if you if you look toward it and you think about it it will manifest itself. <laughs> yeah, well, what I say to them is get comfortable with reality, uh-huh. or reality will make you uncomfortable, or reality will, will, will drag you kicking and screaming into <laughs> the future uh, uh, in a way that you're not prepared for. Um, and there's an awful lot that we can do to prepare for the way that reality is going to compel us to live in the years ahead, and it involves some things that can be stated with precision. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're going to have to retool and reform, literally, the um, the systems that we use to support civilization. We're going to have to grow our food differently because agribusiness is going to fail. You know that is um, farming based on uh, cheap oil and. Uh, uh, you know the byproducts of cheap oil combines. And that's going to fail. Yeah, you know, running enormous machines mm-hmm. and you know uh, uh, transcontinental trucking and herbicides and pesticides made from uh, oil and petroleum and you know all the all the you know all the things that add up to agribusiness and and petro agriculture. We're going to have to grow food differently. We're going to have to do it on. Uh, smaller farms, uh, probably more locally. It doesn't mean that you know we, that things will not move around, you know, regionally or e- even continentally. But but it does mean that um, we're going to have to grow more food close closer to where we live. And the places that can't do that are going to get into trouble. Right. Um, it's probably it's probably going to require more human attention, you know, and fewer machines, and probably uh, we'll have to return to using uh, animal power. We don't know how much. You know, th- that's only one part of it. You know, we're gonna, we're also going to have to do commerce differently. You know, the, the the national chain store model is not going to last, and. Um, the, the the kind of consumer economy that we're you know familiar with is not going to be with us that much longer. Right. So we're going to have to figure out another another way to do routine trade in in goods that people need. We're not thinking about that at all. It it will include features like uh, the end of uh, trucking and the uh, the need to um, revive the inland waterway. Uh, system of North America, which is going to become much more important again. Um, these are the kinds of things we got to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to rebuild the American railroad system, and, and by that I don't mean high-speed rail. I mean the regular rail system, because if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to move anything around or people. Are you disappointed because, with? Uh, uh, with, with? Because I know Joe Biden talked a lot about that during the initial campaign, and he seems to have completely dropped that idea. Like he's well, given, the fact given of the matter is. You know, the, the people will get the leadership that they deserve, and um, uh, and and they'll get the political movements and policies they deserve. The fact of the matter is, the American people are not interested in these things. The American people 
uh, don't care about passenger rail, even though it's quite clear that the happy motoring system that, that you know, we're so comfortable with is probably not going to continue a whole lot longer. I'm just going to clarify, like, that, when you say happy motoring, you mean like the, just for listeners, but happy motoring, like the current car, car culture where everything we do is in a car and related to cars, and that's our only way of experiencing the world. Exactly. Right. And that's especially our only way of understanding transportation mm-hmm. uh, of, of people and things. And, you know, th- that is going to fail for reasons that go beyond the, the, just the question of what the cost of gasoline at the pump is. And, you know, th- this is another thing that the American people really don't get. And their leaders don't get it either. You know, it's not just about uh, how, you know, how you power a vehicle. Um, what, one of the uh, things that's happening in the background of American life right now is, you know, we're running into uh, a, a tremendous problem with the impairment of capital formation and banking. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean really basically the money system. You know, most people who, who follow the news are at least dimly aware of this, but I don't think they understand the implications. And one implication is there's going to be a whole lot less money for people to borrow to buy cars for car loans. And that's how Americans mainly buy cars, right. on installment loans. And so what that tells me is, you know, the trend that is coming up is that it's, it's going to be harder and harder for Americans to buy cars because of this problem with money. And it's also going to be reflected in uh, something that, that is going on at the same time, which is government is broke at every level. The cities are broke. You know, California's had two uh, cities go out of business, go bankrupt in the last uh, month. Mm-hmm. San Bernardino yesterday and Stockton last week. Well, I didn't know that. And, That's um, good news. <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting, but, you know, one of the things this tells you is that, you know, government is broke at all levels, and government is not going to be able to pay to maintain the incredibly elaborate roadway system that we've built over the last hundred years. And there's no question that it's, you know, it's going to fail from the margins inward, that there will be a triage process. You know, decisions will be made about which roads to maintain and which roads that they just have to let go of. But this will also affect things like bridges and, uh, you know, other highway infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And it's, what it means is that, uh, you know, uh, in a not very long period of time, um, we're going to be challenged uh, by the roadway system itself. Um, so the, the whole motoring um, uh, paradigm, the whole motoring matrix really... Um, uh, is under threat from way more than just the price of gasoline. Right. And, you know, people don't get that. Do you think that, um, well, because I know you talk about in your book that we're, we are in global post-peak right now. And that, is, do you say that it happened in 2008? Or Well, you know, the, I, I think there, there are somewhat different ways of understanding that um, depending on exactly how you define the type of oil that mm-hmm. you're talking about. But I, I, I would say generally that uh, we don't have a whole lot of ability to increase the global supply of oil right now. You know, we're, we're doing it a, a, a tiny bit at the margins uh, of uh, uh, unconventional substances like um, 
shale oil and and uh, tar sands. But that those methods for getting the the expensive, hard to get oil are going to founder on exactly that problem of capital formation that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. That um, there's going to be a whole lot less money uh, to invest in getting oil from difficult to get places, uh, from places where right. it's expensive to to get it. Uh, you know, that's another way of saying that. You can't really get the expensive oil without having plenty of cheap oil in the background. Right. So, mm-hmm. so you know, the, the, there, there are uh, some angles of the whole oil picture that may seem a little abstruse and, and uh, you know, hard to get a, a hold on. But um, in general, I, I think you can just suffice it to say that we're not going to really substantially increase the global oil supply, and we're probably heading into a steady decline all around. Now, in, in the long emergency, you talked about how a lot of times these big, big oil uh, cartels and big oil companies, they will... They, their price is based on speculation for their next year's uh, how much oil they draw and how a lot of times those those numbers are fudged because that's what dictates the price. Do you see a future where where uh, gas will continue to hover around or not not above five dollars a gallon based upon f- like fake face fake uh, fake numbers like price fixing up until the point when it's just not available when the when the when the chain uh, stops running because they can't they can't extract it at a, at a ratio that makes sense. Well, um, uh, uh, I would put it a little differently. Um, when you get to a point where there's real tension between um, the supply and the demand for this stuff. Um, you, we'll, we will find ourselves and have found ourselves already once in a situation of extreme volatility where prices can shoot way up and prices can crash. Okay. And, and the, the reason this happens uh, probably is because, you know, as, as prices go up, uh, as oil prices go up, that tends to crash economies. And then as the economies crash over a period of several months or, you know, half a year, um, th- that tends to crash the oil price. And you get into this dynamic where, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly, the prices are, are oscillating between being high and then crashing the economy again. And that's sort of what happened in 2008. And I think that's what will happen this year as the, the global economy is now in a fairly massive contraction at the mm-hmm. moment now in the, in the summer of 2012. And um, uh, th- there's a very good possibility that oil prices will crash again. And then, but uh, the important part of this is that with each resumption of uh, of anything that resembles growth, um, the ceiling is lower the next time. So you end up in a kind of a stair step situation where you know you're 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 really basically going down with these punctuated uh, instances of uh, you know. Um, uh, of economic uh, resurgence between. 
but but each time it it returns to a, a slightly lower level that you were at before. Um, I'm not sure how many cycles of that we can go through before major systems really start to to crash. Like the airline industry that, I mean, kind of thing? Yeah, things like, you know, the oil industry itself mm-hmm. probably cannot endure uh, repeated iterations of, uh, of price volatility of this kind because eventually... Uh, the capital will not be there at all to carry out the kind of operations that are necessary to keep the volume of the of flows of oil coming. That's uh, that's, that's another thing. way. Right. That, that that's one. another way of saying that that you know you get to a point where um, there isn't enough uh, investment money left to carry on tar sand exploitation or shale oil uh, fracking or, mm-hmm. or those. those these operations that actually are quite expensive to carry on. So, you know, one, once that happens and then the supply of oil really, really starts to deplete pretty steeply, you know, then you're in a, a situation where all kinds of other things start crashing around you. Do, do you think that people in the oil industry, do you think, like what percentage of them do you think that um, realize this is is happening and are sort of just determined to, to carry on until as long as they can and, and what percentage is really just unaware and just doesn't even think about it? I have no idea what what any uh, you know reality based number of that would be. I can yeah. only guess that you know I, um, I have to think that um, you know there there are probably a lot of executives uh, who understand this dynamic and are just trying to make the best of the situation while they can. In other words, you know, strictly short term thinking. Right, and that's and short term thinking. Then that ju- so they're basically just living for the next. They're living. For the next, for the day, next every, quarter, you know, right. to report the next uh, quarterly earnings and and uh, you know keep their share price up. So, you know, they'll do that until they can't. That's the old Herb Stein economic <laughs> formulation. You know that people do what they do until they can't do it anymore. It's almost bringing it back to Hollywood. It's the whole uh, fake it till you make it thing on in a way. You bet. Yeah. You bet. Except- and uh, you know, I, I must add my you know one of my general principles uh, because. Because I uh, am allergic to conspiracy notions, mm-hmm. um, I, I generally discount them. You know, I, um, one of my cardinal beliefs is that you know people do what they do because it seems like a good idea at the time. Right. You know, suburbia wasn't a conspiracy to make Americans feel bad or or create a way of life for them that they couldn't afford. Or, or to create a way of life that was doomed, you know, suburbia happened because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a lot of, it was a big continent. There was a lot of uh, cheap real estate. We had a lot of our own oil in the 1950s and 60s. And we didn't have a whole lot of, you know, consensus or agreement or notion that that there were limits to any of this. So we did what we did. Right. Now we're living with the consequences of that 50, 60 years later. So... Um, but you know, it's it's, it's about uh, people doing what seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. What do you now? What do you think about this? I've heard this theory talked about by some people, including um, you, you know you know that show Coast to Coast AM. Yeah, I yeah. was on it once. <laughs> oh, you were? I don't okay. really listen to it. Yeah, it's it's definitely it kind of goes. It gets pretty crazy sometimes. Sometimes they have some real. It's wackos. pretty crazy, and right. you know, I, I'm I'm really not into the whole kind of you know UFO and yeah. 
you know, yeah. cosmic occult kind of stuff that they're into. But I was on it once uh, uh, when Art Bell was running it, oh, okay. you know, five, six years ago. Right. <clears throat> well, the, the the guy who runs it now, George Norrie, and, and a lot of other people he has on the show, and I've even talked to regular people, they believe in this, you know, about the abiotic oil theory that we're basically... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, the, it's the idea that the Earth is a bonbon with a creamy nougat center of oil. It just blows my mind that that's something that people can actually think. And I don't, I don't know how... There's, there's people who are thinking people who believe that, and they... I don't know where where that comes from exactly. Where does that where does that idea have like a genesis? Oh, it it, it has its genesis um, as a practical matter in some Russian pseudo scientist who was you know trying to fob this theory off, and then there was a guy at Cornell who got a hold of it and tried to promote it. Um, but you know, it's just it's just part of the large body of human nonsense that you know we have a big inventory of from you know 5000 years of civilization and the fact is there's no evidence at all that uh oil fields replenish themselves especially the major oil fields the ones that we depend on for most of our oil there's, there's simply no evidence of it uh so you know we know why the oil is there and and we know geologically we understand it wasn't made from dinosaurs but it, it, you know it it's largely the debris of um, plants in bodies of water that uh, uh, came under certain geological influences and pressures, and and uh, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are a lot of people who want to just believe that uh, there's an endless supply of it in the center of the earth, and, and you know, um, a, a lot of this is just... Uh, an excuse to uh, believe that we can keep on living exactly the way we're living now and, right. and that we don't have to make any changes. I think that's so interesting. You talk about going to the TED Talk and how how you're surrounded by all these people who are supposed to be brilliant, top of their field, and how everything devolves to just talking about how to make cars more fuel efficient. It's it's funny. Oh, that that, just, well, actually, yeah, that's that wasn't Ted. That I was, think it was the some, it was some, yeah. environment forum. Right, that's it. Okay, and it just yeah, it they just were the uh, you know the cream of the the cream of the environmental movement, and every time the subject of uh, you know uh, peak oil or extreme car dependency came up, you know the only thing they really want to talk about is finding different ways to run the cars. And and it's by by describing that in my book, I'm trying to make the point that um, uh, we have conversations going on in the, in among our intellectual classes in America that are not worthy of 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 these people. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to have a better quality conversation among these groups of people. And we're not. We're, we're seeing kind of a comprehensive failure of of common sense in places, uh, you know, that, full of people who ought to know better. Is there anybody out there who's got some sort of high profile uh, position that is that is talking about that kind of stuff? That's talk that's talking about the same things you are. No, I, I think that all of the talk that's going on about resource scarcity and um, the, the the real uh, talk about the impairments of the banking system are pretty much going on on the margins. Uh, and by that, I also include the internet. Mm-hmm. Although the internet is fast uh, moving towards the center, 
it's still not the dead center. You know, it's not cable TV, yeah. it's not cable <laughs> news, it's not it's not the Wall Street Journal. The the New York Times and the Wall Street Journals, which have been really the two newspapers of record through most of my lifetime, have done an abysmal job of covering these issues and uh, just a disgraceful job. And it is, it's hard to understand. Now, I don't particularly think the New York Times is misreporting the oil issue because they've sold out to the oil companies. Right. I don't believe that at all. I think that they just have, uh, you know, editors are just lame and they're, they're just not they don't understand what's going on uh, in the oil industry. And they don't understand how it relates to the other problems that we're having. And they're just, you know, I think they're in one way or another um, sort of stuck in a very parochial view of, of reality. Is it a thing where it's just... Mostly, mostly having to do with New York trivia. <laughs> do you think a lot of it just people, they, they just think it's such a such a big thing to swallow it's like oh I, that just can't be it seems kind of that's ridiculous it seems too well uh, that's yeah maybe maybe that maybe partly it you know the wall street journal uh i think has a different function you know they're the handmaiden of wall street obviously right and uh so part of their job is protecting the industries that are associated with wall street namely you know banking uh, broker brokerage uh, and uh, and big business, right. and uh, they have an interest in concealing the truth about banking, especially. And the truth about banking is very simple right now. Most of the activities of banking in the last 25 years um, have been enabled to continue on the basis of accounting fraud. <laughs> and uh, you know, the the last thing that the Wall Street Journal is going to do right now is blow the whistle on real accounting fraud because it's pervasive. And it's what's keeping the system going. It's, it may be the only thing that's keeping it going. So, so that failure is understandable. But the New York Times is a little bit more mystifying. And, um, you know, there are generational issues with that, like the, the various uh, cults of political correctness and multiculturalism have um, been very big inducers of dishonesty in my generation. They've made it very hard for us to have um, truthful conversations about all kinds of things, uh, you know, uh, including questions that go to the the issue of whether we are capable of be, of having a common culture or not, mm -hmm. which is to say, sets of behaviors that uh, that everybody has to subscribe to equally, including ethics and morals and and standards of conduct. And, and, you know, one of the reasons that the banking failure has been what it is has a lot to do with the, the relativism of the boomer generation. And, and so we end up in a situation where the rule of law is now absent in American, really in international banking, but mm -hmm. in particular in, on Wall Street in America. And, you know, this has everything to do with the, the culture of relativism that my generation uh, promoted. And, and I say this, by the way, as a registered Democrat who voted <laughs> for Obama. Uh -huh. I'm not a right winger. Yeah. So you must, you must have like a, a pretty big libertarian following, right? Do you, do you, do you have, do you have, do you find that a lot of libertarians are 
support you? Frankly, I don't know. Really? I mean, I, I, I consort with all kinds of people, you right. know, uh, from, from pretty extreme people on the right to pretty extreme people on the left and everything in between. And um, uh, I, I'm not all that sympathetic to the right wing, but I'm increasingly alienated from the Democratic left these days, too. As yeah. I think many people are, you know, uh, I mean, one of the problems I would define in our politics is, is simply that, you know, there's no credible center left. Right. And, uh, you know, I consider myself a part of the center and, and a, uh, you know, a very uh, a small remnant of whatever's left of it. Yeah, it's it's just going away, and all the yeah. people. The only thing people are interested in is is technology, and it's there's so much so much distraction that that the the basically politicians and the whole political system is. If it's not entertaining, then it doesn't exist, and it's that's what they've built themselves on now increasingly because it's all it's all the same thing. They've, everything's melded together. Seems like the de- as yeah. far as Democrats and Republicans go. I'm just waiting for the moment when Snooki starts doing the uh, CBS Evening News. So it'll happen, I'm sure. She's just, they have to just they have yeah. to just get her ready. You have to teach her how to read, and then um, yeah. then she'll be ready to go. You just get a prompter. Be good in front to go. They just get some, yeah. one of those little like eyepieces in front of her, so she just has to. She has to just react, or maybe she can do it like uh, Marlon Brando, where she just has someone in her ear telling her what to say. So <laughs> it'll be like Apocalypse Now, except the news. It'll be great. Did he have an earpiece on it, and he, he was getting fed his lines? Yeah, in Apocalypse Now, he did because it was he was at sort of the height of his whole um, uh, method acting, where he thought if he read the lines before he said them, it would ruin him because he would judge them. So he, yeah. made, so he had a. Francis Ford Coppola um, reading him though I think it was I don't I don't maybe it was Francis Ford Coppola but I don't know someone reading him his been lines just some, some, uh, yeah some, yeah, some, some PA some poor PA yeah that's a good use of the industry term there a lot of <laughs> PA um, I I've, uh, I'm a big fan of your books The World Made by Hand and The Witch of Hebron and there's something you, you talk about you kind of you know it's not like a huge tenet of the book but it's something that I thought was really interesting about how um, basically, about how in this, this in this future in this post peak future, where uh, the electric was no more electricity and the the, the noise and, and the noise of uh, modern modern civilization and is gone and when fall, that noise falls away, uh, things of what for lack of a better word magic kind of spring up a little bit. Like there's subtle things that were covered by. The, the the hum of uh, electricity and all things electric, yeah. and what is yeah I, I sort of I sort of put that in the category of the reenchantment of daily life. So do you think that that's something? I mean, I don't know. Do you think do you, is that something you've like you think will be, is very likely to be the case, or is it sort of it's more of just like your fictitious license? No. Um, I mostly wrote the world made by hand novels um, with a sincere attempt to depict what I thought would happen, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, some decades into the American future. So, no, I think that um, I think that a lot of the technological background noise and clank and and you know machine background of our lives is is going to be uh dropping away um i'm serenely confident that the whole automobile thing is going to come to an end 
Um, I am fairly confident that the Internet is not going to be the presence in our life that it is now because it depends entirely on a reliable electric system, and our electric grid is decrepit. You know, people have no idea that, you know, the I, the iPad might look very sleek and, and uh, up-to-date, uh, you know, on your lap there, uh, and all the the apps may look, um, you know, sparkly and, and uh, wonderfully efficient and, and alluring. But the fact is the whole thing is supported by a decrepit electric grid full of equipment that is wearing out fast that we don't have the money to replace. Mm-hmm. And we have no idea how we're going to run all this shit. So, uh, you know, I think that's going to be gone. Um, I'm not all that confident about canned entertainment, you know, whether it's CDs or movies or Internet-supplied stuff or anything. You know, I think we're going to be back to making music with our friends uh, on real instruments and <laughs> with right. our voices. Maybe some, maybe some stand-up comedy, maybe some uh, theater and comedy as well. Theater, comedy, I, there's nothing against that. I'm thinking about starting a little uh, cafe here in my little town where we do, uh, like, puppet shows of Harold Pinter and Samuel Beckett. I think you should do that. I've, let me. I'll, yeah, you know, I'll come out there. I'll do a week. I'll do a week residency of a puppet voice if you need me. I'll, I'll be definitely That would be great. Do Waiting that. for Godot with Johnny Pemberton. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you, the, with um, puppets. With the... Um, what was I going to say here? Oh, well, that's that's the thing I, th- I so thought was interesting. I just saw Louis C.K. I think it's an older interview, but Louis C.K. on Conan talking about how... Um, you know Louis C.K., right? The comedian? Yes. He yes, was saying basically how everything's great right now, but no one's happy. How we have all this tech, we have so much the technology that's amazing. And he's talking about being on an airplane and how he has Wi-Fi in the airplane. And how the guy next to him, when the Wi-Fi went out, was like, "Ah, oh, this is ridiculous. Give me a break!" Like, like how how pissed off he was that that, that stopped working. And he's like, are you, "Are you kidding me? This is this is already absolute magic, and you're." You're pissed up. You're you're unhappy now because your the Wi-Fi on the airplane isn't working, and like, yeah. and it's so funny because he's. Uh, I think it's, I think it's becoming more of a mainstream idea that just the idea that all these things that are supposed to make us happy are really not doing anything at all. They're just sort of, they're just like it's like a it's like a like a cattle prod of sorts. It just kind of shocks you into thinking that everything's good, but really intrinsically, there's something fundamentally. Uh, just well, there's also good. something that, you know, an- another actually a big um, subject in Too Much Magic, my new book, is the diminishing returns of technology, mm-hmm. where, you know, you get to a certain point with technology where uh, uh, it, it actually starts kicking your ass and making your life worse. Right. You know, like, we, we you know, we have all these iPhones and we spent, you know, $30 million or $30 billion computerizing all the phone systems in America over the last 30 years. And then, you know, the object was to improve communication, right? Right. But the net effect of it all is that it's almost impossible to get a live person on the phone now. Yep. And, and that, you know, we're, we're spending most of our time on the phone with robots. Yeah. So, you know, is that making our lives better? I don't yeah, think so. Definitely not. I can tell you as somebody who, you know, who functions as a professional journalist, that it's made my life as a professional journalist a whole lot worse. In the old days, I could call up a major corporation 
talk to a human receptionist and get on the phone with a you know a CEO in five minutes. Right. You know now they have these incredible firewalls. Oh yeah. You can't e- you can't even talk to uh, a human, let alone a receptionist. And they, they've let even alone got the CEO. They've even figured out the whole thing where I just used to always just hit zero over and over again until someone picked up the phone. But they've even figured out that whole thing. So oh, now yeah. you so, can't just hit zero anymore. Yeah. So instead of enhancing communications, what they really succeeded in doing by computerizing the phone system was just creating a massive obstruction and firewall uh, prohibiting communication. So it's been kind of interesting. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure that you have uh, 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 an opinion about the whole texting phenomenon and, you know, and cell phone phenomenon and, and yeah. how that has uh, you know, made just public life ridiculous. It is and, weird. I mean, but there's there are so many there are so many ways that that technology is kicking our ass. You know, I'm I'm involved in one right now that is, uh, you know, it'd be funny if it wasn't uh, uh, health threatening. Oh, with but, your knee? Um, no, my hip. Oh, your hip. Sorry, yeah. I, I, I got I got an innovative hip replacement in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, were, they were using this new innovative product, uh, which was a metal-on-metal bearing in a hip replacement where that was intended for slightly younger patients who were expected to be more active and get a lot more wear out of their hip. And it turned out that these metal-on-metal hips ended up poisoning people by um, shedding uh, cobalt and chromium fragments into their body. <sighs> so I've now got cobalt poisoning, and I've got an, <laughs> I've got an August 9th surgery date to, yeah. to um, go back and redo this surgery. And, uh, you know, it's a major surgery. You know, it could kill you. And uh, it certainly put me out of action for, you know, for a good month. And, um, you know, so that innovation kicked my ass. Um, I guess we should probably close out here, but I guess I, I don't want to just ask you this. You know, I talk to people about these kind of I, these post-peak ideas a lot. And there's, some, there's a lot of people who I know who are, in, at least in Hollywood and whatnot, who are, you know, smart people who have a lot of energy and definitely will tackle almost anything and aren't aren't afraid of uh, working at all. And that's like, the, when you tell them about these kind of things, there's like this, you get this glazed over look and it's basically, that they're like, well, well, what should I do? Well, what do you, what do I do? And I guess that's what I, what I want to ask is that, aside from coming to terms with the idea that these things, this kind of stuff will be coming down the pipe you know, in the next 30 years or whatever. What do you think is like stuff that, that young, able-bodied, smart people can engage in to, uh, uh, to um, with, with that future in mind? Well, I think it's, it, it is tough because the, uh, the decades ahead, I believe, are going to be so unlike the decades that we have been living through recently that it's very hard to imagine what your place might be in that world or, or even what the contours of that world would be. That's one of the reasons that I wrote my World Made by Hand novels was to give people a, a vivid and graphic sense of, uh, of what that world might be, look, what, what it might look like. And, and, you know, living in economies that have become much more local and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, way down scale to what we, you know, currently understand. And, um, you know, I, I would just say this, that um, um, there are some fundamental questions that uh, 
people, especially young people, would benefit from asking themselves. One is, um, what is really a, a place to live that has a future? And to look around where you are. And if you're in Phoenix or, or Las Vegas and possibly even Los Angeles, yeah. um, you know, uh, I mean, it's my opinion that, that those places don't have uh, really bright futures. And uh, it's probably a good idea to start thinking about where else to go in this country if you want to remain in the United States or, or you know, North America. Um, and then secondarily, uh, you have to ask yourself, uh, what can I devote my time to in the way of uh, vocation? Or you know, I hesitate to use the word job because I'm not sure that the the term job is going to apply to what we do with our time in the years ahead. Uh, it's going to be more like a trade or a place or a vocation mm-hmm. or a calling. Um, and uh, you know, especially in terms of how you can make yourself useful to other people in a way that might incidentally give you a living or a livelihood. Right. And, uh, you know, that, that means uh, taking serious stock of how the economy is structured today and asking yourself, well, are these kinds of jobs going to be there in the future? I, I wouldn't be too um, sanguine about, uh, you know, becoming a corporate um, uh, functionary. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, think that, I don't think that the corporate um, life is going to continue as we've known it. You know, I think partly because I believe that uh, categorically that anything that's scaled on the giant scale is going to tend to fail, whether it's a big corporate enterprise or a giant government or a giant educational institution, you know, a university. Um, I think that the key to understanding the future is that uh, things are going to have to be small, local and nimble. And you better pick a locality that, uh, you know, has some ability to function. So, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that I am, you know, I I look more favorably on on places that are currently, uh, you know, the last places that people would think about, like, you know, the Great Lakes states in the upper Midwest Uh or, you know, certain parts of uh, the Northeast. Um, we've been losing population here where I am for 40 years, but, um, you know, we have a lot of running water here, and um, uh, we have a pretty, pretty good supply of decent agricultural land, and, uh, uh, you know, th- those are the kinds of things that are going to make a difference in the, the going further in the 21st century. Well, there you have it. Those are your tasking orders. That and pup- yeah. puppet show. I think that would probably puppet shows, baby. Puppet show to to ease us into the uh, ease us into the um, the crisis. Yeah, the puppet doesn't need a SAG card. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I said maybe SAG card will be completely useless now. It just it's uh, <laughs> well already you kind of is. Still- you, you could probably still use it for chopping up blow or something. Yeah. I don't know. I was just about to say that, but I didn't, be, I didn't want to be the person who said it. So um, thank, you for, thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> yeah, that's like, <laughs> okay. Sidecar's used for that. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Jim. And uh, best hey, of luck. Good luck with the podcast. Yeah, and best of luck with your uh, knee thing. And any, Do you have any speaking engagements coming up you want to you plug? 
you know, uh, I, I have some coming up in the fall, but I want to be absolutely sure that I'm okay. going to be get going to them because I don't know how long my recovery is going to be. I, I don't know. You know, there's a certain period after surgery where they don't really want you to get on a plane. Yep. Air pockets. So it's all I'm, about air pockets. I may have. I may have to work around that. Got it. Well, um, best of luck, and thanks for talking to me, and hopefully we can talk again sometime, update people. Maybe maybe a new word. We'll move on from simulacrum. Okay. Well, great, Johnny. Take care, Jim. Adios. Bye-bye. Your call is very important to us. As a part of our commitment to quality, this call may be monitored or recorded. Thank you for calling Boston. This is Amanda. How can I help you? Hi. Hi. This is this is Poston? Yes. Oh, I thought I was calling Kraft. Yeah, this is Kraft. Oh, well, you just said it was Poston. Yeah, that's how the call came through. Oh, okay. It, like, it designates it. Okay, sorry about that. Hey, so um, I heard the message about Poston being, like, discontinued. Yes. Um, and honestly, I, I've never had it before. I've, like, only recently learned about it. But, um... Now, I know you don't make it anymore, but is there any way to, like, get, like, an, do you have, like, an heirloom stock of it? Or, like, are there people who've, like, I don't get how it works. Like, No, we, if, when the product's discontinued, we no longer have it. We no longer carry it. The last of what was made was the last of it. What happened? Do, do, do you, like, burn it in an, in an open lot? <laughs> they no. distribute the last of the stock to store, sell it off. After it's sold off, then it's, it's gone. But see, it's one of those things where... Now that I can't get it, I want it so bad. I want to just try yeah. this because it seems like it's such a historic. I'm looking up the Wikipedia entry to it. This stuff sounds like it's got quite the story on it. You know? Right. Yeah. Have you had it? No, I haven't. You haven't. Oh man. No. How, how do you feel about that? About not having it? Yeah. I mean, doesn't does it must have some sort of effect on you, right? Um, I mean, not really, but everyone has their own personal feelings about different things. And right. I will definitely forward your comments along regarding this. Um, but I, well, I, I think what they have here is they're on something because it says, you know, it's people who believed caffeine to be unhealthy. Caffeine is unhealthy, right? We know that, right? Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Right. I don't you, consume caffeine, so. You don't drink caffeine? <laughs> no. Well, then there you go, okay? You know better than me. I'm drinking a cup of hot tea right now, so that's got caffeine in it. Yeah. How come we don't drink caffeine? I mean, if you don't mind me asking, I'm not like trying to cry, but <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, it's a personal decision. I really can't have you know personal conversations like that. Okay. But. Well, I mean, I'm, it, it's 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 pertaining to postum. It's caffeine-free right. beverage. <laughs> I'm asking your personal opinion because you are in some sense a representative of your company and. Uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm just curious. I mean, it, it, I understand, I, mean, I have a lot of friends who are Mormon, and they don't, they abstain from caffeine for that reason. Totally okay to me. Makes complete sense. So, you're not going to shock me if you say that. I'll be like, that's great. More power to you. Keep it's just a, a personal decision. Okay, that's good. Really? You know what? Well done. How long you been doing, how long you been on the, on the, on that wagon? Or, I guess... A long time, a few years, wow. actually. Do, have you experienced caffeine? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you know it. So that's even, yes. see, that's even harder. What, what gets me is the people who, like, they've never tried something and then they won't, you know? Like, right. never had alcohol, never will. I'm like, well, how can you say that? You never have. 
at least try it if you're going to say no to it. You know, <laughs> even the Amish have a rumspriga so you can kind of see what you're missing and make a decision based upon that. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, but we're not, you're not Amish because you wouldn't no. be on the phone right now. Because, <laughs> right. you, know, you know, the Amish, they have like a thing against technology. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Well, where are you guys in the country? Are you in uh, Ohio? We're in Pe- Pennsylvania. Oh, my. Who knew? Isn't that <laughs> funny? Because there's a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch up in where you are. Yes. And yes, there are. Pennsylvania Dutch, a.k.a. Amish, right? I'm very familiar with yeah. Amish, yes. i got to say, though, <laughs> the um, they definitely have some seriously good cinnamon rolls. Have you ever had an Amish cinnamon roll? No. God damn, they're ridiculous. <laughs> because, you know, they have, like, that all-natural butter and everything that goes into it. It's just, it's like, I mean, it's probably like postum, um, where it's, my, my memory of it is, greater than the actual thing itself, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes you th- you, have, you remember something right? as being great when really it's not that great. They have good homemade ice cream. Oh, see, there you go. Same sort of thing. Yeah. It's, it's all based yeah. on that. It's all based on the, uh, the, the, the milk. I'm sure it's the milk, isn't it? Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine being lactose intolerant and being Amish? No. Oh, no. <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> would you would you just wake up dead every day? They would they would probably kill you. I don't know. I don't know what they would do in that situation. I know. Be, uh, that's that's a, that's what we call a pickle right there. Well, I do have other calls. I do have to get to. Dude, if there's well, nothing else I could help you with today. Do you really sure. have, do you really have other calls? Yes, do, I do. I mean, are people just the people are just breaking down your door trying to find out where Postum went five years ago. Well, we're craft food, so we do have okay, a, lot, a large number of calls that do come in. So people are calling about, like, this cheese. What's up with this cheese? <laughs> I got we, this we do get cheese. a lot of different calls. Do people ever just call up and be like, my cheese? <laughs> no? Um, it depends on the call, but we do get a, a lot of different calls. Aside from this one, what's the weirdest call you've ever got? I really can't discuss that. Oh, Okay. You know, it's like, I might as well be talking to the FBI here. <laughs> um, One, two more questions. Have you, ever seen a, have you ever seen a UFO? No, if it's not craft-related, I okay. really do have to let okay. you go. One craft-related okay. question. One craft-related question. Have you, okay. um, has, have you ever been struck by, no, this is not a craft-related. I was going to ask if you've ever <laughs> been struck by lightning, but, I mean, you, you could, you can, you know, you can turn it back into craft. Just, you could say, um, oh, have you ever seen a spacecraft or has, uh, never mind. Well, I just, I'm, I'm going to try to get my hands on some of this post. I have a feeling, do you think eBay, I'm going to try eBay. You can try that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Have you ever used eBay? Yep. Yeah. That's good. Um, well, good luck with those other cheese calls. Thank you. Thank you for calling us to post them today. You have a good day. Okay. You too. See you later. Feralio.com is an artist-friendly podcast collective hosted by castmates.fm. Host your own podcast at castmates.fm today. All of our artists reserve the rights to their materials. Your donations directly support your favorite artists, help pay for their show's production, and keep your favorite shows free. Visit feralio.com for other original shows and learn about our community of artists that help make this collective possible. Thank you for listening to this podcast.
This album features the music of the fancy. We are the fancy.net. the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.